Well, guys, if you will open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and if you are visiting or new to the church, we are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. It is a letter in the New Testament, and it is one of the ways that we learn from God is just by picking up his Bible and walking through it and letting, letting the Bible set the tone and, and set the topics, right? I don't know if you've... Sometimes preachers get a bad reputation for standing in their pulpit and just talking about whatever is bugging them or whatever they've got a you know an inkling to talk about that day or whatever political stuff is in the news or you know I'm not sure what drives some pulpits and, and there are moments when we're going to sit in certain categories but quite often what we do is we just study through the Bible and, and when that happens. The Bible is going to bring up the next subject. And it might be something I want to talk about or I'm not really crazy to talk about. But it might be true for you that way as well, right? We might talk about something you're like, oh, I got up early and came today and that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, Well, just remember, there was an author who wrote this stuff. He thought it'd be worthwhile if we visited some of these ideas. And so we're going to visit 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we picked this passage up two weeks ago, last time we were in 1 Corinthians and I'm not going to go back and re-preach that portion. The, the bigger context is here. There, there's a situation in this church in Corinth in the first century where sexual immorality has, has taken place. And, and it's known. The church knows about it, but nothing's been done about it. And, and Paul has been addressing that. But what he's going to do in this passage is he's going to bring up a little bit of a sidebar issue that I want to take a moment to turn our attention to significantly. This might be something oftentimes if you've read this passage before, you've scooted past it. I want us to stop and look at something because I think it's an issue for us as a church that God wants to get our attention in in this particular year. So I want us to see it. So I'm going to start in chapter 5 verse 9. Let's read there. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray just for a moment. Uh, Lord, there were some things going on a couple of thousand years ago that you chose to speak about, write down, and preserve for us so that thousands of years later, we would learn from these moments that you hand-selected. So Lord, we're only going to learn if you help us. Lord, we cannot do this in our human capacity. Our own minds cannot come into agreement with you. We, we, Holy Spirit, we need you to give us ears to hear and eyes that see and hearts that welcome and receive your word. So please do that, Lord, as we are interacting with this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, two weeks ago, we spent time 
unpacking the thought that there was somebody in the church that the prescribed activity for that person is in that last phrase there. Purge the evil person from among you. Put that person out. Person who's been among you, who's been a part of your church. You're to take some actions where they're no longer to be welcomed the same way. Now listen, that stuff gets my attention. And I'm sure it gets your attention too, because it's not the typical thing you find in the Bible. And and quite honestly, in America, our values are shifting. You know, you are living through a radical cosmic shift in values in our country. And so probably what began in the 60s and 70s has accelerated tremendously about, since about 2005, there is an, an amazing acceleration of change. And so the culture thinks a certain way. It gets all riled up about certain things. It ignores certain stuff. It makes a big deal out of certain things and not a big deal out of some other things. And so you get around that and you come to the Bible. Maybe you're new to reading the Bible. Maybe you haven't really spent a lot of time reading God's word throughout your life. And you read stuff like this and it it almost can feel alarming. Like, wait, really? The Bible teaches stuff like this? Like Christians are to disassociate themselves from people? Wait, wait, when did that, when did that start acting like a nice way that Christians are, I thought Christians were nice people. What do you mean they're going to, they're going to purge people from their midst? And what's this whole idea about judging people? Especially actually says that you're to judge somebody. That is so uncool today, isn't it? I mean, you are so out of bounds. If you stand up with a sense of labeling something right or wrong, you try doing that at the Grammy Awards or something, right? You'd be heckled out the building. Well, here we are being taught by this passage something that I want to say is very, very important. And your temptation would be to read passages too quickly. Did you notice that this passage is going to highlight that there are insiders and outsiders? Did you see that in here? That sounds uncool too, doesn't it? Isn't everybody supposed to be in? I mean, let's be inclusive. Let's be tolerant. Let's, let's all be in this together. I mean, we're all, after all, we're all God's children, aren't we? And, and we're all God's creation. I, that message is what I live in every day. And then I pick the Bible up and I'm tempted to read past this real fast. Do not do that. One of the most important things you will ever discover about yourself is whether you're an insider or an outsider. And if you've got no category for that, you can't discover that about yourself, can you? If you think, well, everybody's an insider with God because he's a loving being. Everybody's an insider. You may feel that way, and you may have been taught something like that, or you may just pick that up from the dust in the air. But when you read a passage like this, it should stop you in your tracks and go, whoa, whoa what's this about? Insiders and outsiders. Well, let me just tell you this. If you miss that there are those who are insiders, and I'll just say them, the Bible, the way the Bible describes that is multiple ways, but basically you are in a right relationship with the God who created you. And there are those who are outside of that, not in a right relationship with the God who created you. All right, so that's true of every human being at some point in your life. You are not in a relationship with God. Maybe you'd like to be. Maybe you don't give a rip. But you realize this whole book is not a book about cool old stories about people who wore different clothing and drove chariots and had sandals and stuff. And, you know, it's just kind of like a book about people. 
No, this is a book about one thing. And those people are all trying to tell that one story. And that one thing is about how to be reconciled to God. That's the one thing this book is about. If you pick this book up and you never come across that, you've missed the main point. Everything in here is about how to go from being outside of a relationship with God to being in a relationship with God. And there is one person who did something so significant for every human being that he is the central feature in this entire book. Jesus Christ. This whole book is finding its way to the person and the activity and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is about. Because at some point, if you and I ever want to go from being outside of a relationship with God to being in a relationship with God, you are going to only be able to do that through Jesus Christ. No one else, nothing else can ever reconcile us to God. So this is the most important thing that's in in scripture. And it gets featured, it gets tweaked out when you just are reading and the Bible comes up and says, hey... You an insider or an outsider? Well, I don't like the way that feels. Well, it's not asking. You know know the Bible never asks you to vote on what it says? I don't know if you've noticed that or not. There's not like a little box at the bottom of a page. It's like, comment here. (laughs) You know, it's written by God. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your input. You and I need to hear from him. And we need to just weigh seriously what he has said. So if God uses these labels... We would be wise to pay attention to them, right? Now, there's something else here, and this is where I want to I want to tweak out something that's here. Because Paul starts off saying, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with certain people. And then he's going to clarify what he means by that. But but did you know that the Bible has something to say with who you associate with? Right? Sometimes we just inherit the people that we associate with. You know, we were born into a certain family, got a certain extended family. Then we went to school, we got around some people, and they were our classmates, and we did stuff with them. We played ball on a team, and they were some people that we connected with. We had a particular talent that we had, and so we got around people that were like that. And next thing you know, you just got people in your life. They're, they're just the people. And you are actually making decisions about who you associate and who you do not associate with. There are some people in your life that you used to associate with that you don't anymore. Why? What, what determined that? There are some people that when you get out of church today and, and you get out here and you live your life, you're going to go hang out with some people today and tomorrow at the end of the week. You're going to make room for some people in your life. You're going to say yes to some and no to others. And you might not be doing it for these reasons, but you're going to get around some people and you're going to avoid some other people. Do you know God has something to say about that? It just makes sense. I mean, God cares about us. And God has a purpose for our lives. But have you ever stopped to consult God? God, what do you have to say about my associates? About who I do associate with and who I do not associate with? And this passage helps us to engage that thought here. That word associate, it just means to mix together with, to mingle with, to keep company with. All right, so this morning I want you to be postured to do this. Would you invite God into your associations? Into thinking right now, there are people in my life that I get around, I hang around with, I'm chumming with. And there are some people that I'm avoiding. I, I, 
don't make room for them. I don't pursue them. I don't like being around them. I think I shouldn't be around them. All right, you got names coming out in your head? All right. Well, a couple of things here I want us to catch as, as this unfolds. I think I'm putting your outline there. There are different principles and expectations for these sets of people and for how we relate to them. All right, so the first thing you got to have in your mind, there are insiders and outsiders. There are two sets of people that are in your world. How do you relate to them? What's your connection with them going to be like as you associate or don't associate with them? All right, one thought here. There are different, listen, different moral expectations and different actions concerning judging and avoiding people that get presented in this passage. Because Paul has said something. I told you don't even associate with sexually immoral people. And they took that to mean something. And they applied it in their life a certain way. And Paul comes back and says, no, 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 no. You misunderstood what I said. You applied it in a way that I did not intend you to apply it. And he's going to correct that a little bit, which is very helpful because I think many in the church world have done this. We have disassociated ourselves from people. And I'm going to try to explain that today, why we've done it. We've got some good reasons for why we've done it, but I don't think we've done it right. But what's interesting here is, and this is, this is where a little bit of the shock tone is going to come in here, is there is a group of people that are insiders that Paul expects something about their lives. If you are in a relationship with God, this is what went into that. At some point, you were not, nobody was born an insider, by the way. Everybody was disconnected from God. And at some point, lights begin to come on, and there's some mystery there. Not because you're intelligent, not in fact, you don't have access to the light switch. Only God can turn the lights on. And the lights began to come on at some point in your life. And you became aware, maybe you became convicted. You became aware of something wrong with your life. You became aware that Jesus Christ had done something unique on your behalf. And you began to desire to respond to that. And in faith, the response to that was actually a work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was now coming into your life. He was not there before. But he was coming into your life. And when he came, he was going to make you a new creation. He was going to change who you are. He was going to give you a life you didn't have five minutes before. He was going to begin to operate in you with an influence and a power and new desires that would never have come into your soul are now going to be found there. Don't you think that might result in you living your life a little bit differently? Well, of course it would. It's it's the power of God coming into a human being. So at some point, you and I are going to be very different. If you really are a person who knows Christ and the Holy Spirit has brought that about and he is now dwelling in you, your life is going to be different. And that's one set of people that's in this passage. You ought to expect something from yourself and from others who are in that condition. I think I've used this goofy illustration before. Listen, if you just happen to wander out onto the interstate and get run over by an 18-wheeler going 75 miles an hour, do you think that might leave an impact on you? 
Would you expect that the God of the universe who just said, let there be light and everything flung itself into existence by his power. Do you think that if he bumped into you, there might be an impact on you? All right. So when Paul looks at these two groups and he says, you know, and I look at some of these insiders, I don't see any impact. It's those sexually immoral people that I'm talking about. Right, so he's making a differentiation here. Right, then there's another set of folks involved here. Right, to put your outline in, there is judgment in one category that is appropriate. But that same judgment is not appropriate in the other category. Because that other category hadn't been hit by the truck. It kind of makes sense that there's no dents in them. That they just look like they've always looked. That they operate out of the same ideas and power as they've always operated out of. So when you look at insiders and outsiders, you should expect difference. And you should make judgments and create your expectations based on what we know about these two groups. Craig Blomberg in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says, verses 9 through 13, this little section we're looking at, it has profound implications for the church's role in society. Its first responsibility is always to model God's countercultural standards. So I just stop right there. To model, to let these things come to life in us. Just, just pull up a chair and watch, world. Just, just, we're just modeling something. Which, by the way, modeling isn't some form of faking something. It's just letting what really is real out. Right? So that's the first responsibility, always to model God's countercultural standards before a watching world. Listen, rather than trying to impose those standards on society as a whole. I don't know if you realize this. But the church seems upside down in those two categories, which is what exactly what Corinthians had a problem with. We seem so much more jazzed up about, noisy about, emphatic about, outraged about, that that world out there ain't behaving right. And we don't seem to be quite so bothered that we ain't behaving right. And this is the upside down situation that Paul's referring to. The high expectations are not on the world. The high expectations are on the people who've been run over by God. That you actually might look like you just got run over by God. And if people just pulled up a chair and watched your life, they'd see God oozes out all over the place from who you are. Right? That's what is being referred to here. And an interesting thought here. Blomberg brings out. He says, in the Roman Empire, Christians had little opportunity to influence the laws of the land. In democracies, believers have both the right and the responsibility as citizens to promote their ideological and ethical convictions through legal processes. But they have no unique mandate as the church to try to Christianize nations. We are not here... To fulfill a mission of merely adjusting the morals of this world. To get them to stop doing these forms of bad behavior and start doing these forms of bad behavior. When they were doing these forms of bad behavior and flipping God off. And then they moved over here and started doing a new form of better behavior. But they're still flipping God off. You understand? It's the flipping God off that's the problem. 
It's the fact that man is in rebellion against his creator. Man has living his life on the outside. Man is broken off from God. That's the issue. Now, Paul's expectation is, and you know, if you fix that, you'll actually fix behavior as well. This is why he's shocked here in this passage. But, but don't make the mistake, and, and Christianity and some leaders in Christianity have made this mistake. If you follow the last century, you will find a, I mean, it was called this moral majority. You remember this movement? You guys old enough to remember this? 60s and 70s into the 80s? The moral majority? It brought to the church the idea that what we're really all about is bringing morality to our country. And so we fought for it with, you know, Senate races and legislation. And, and listen, I'm with Blomberg here. I, I think if we can change the laws of our land to more reflect that which God created, which is good for man, we should do it. This is not an argument for don't be involved in politics. It's an argument of don't make the mistake of thinking that changing politics is why we're here. Right, if you fast forward here, here's what I want to put this thought under. The title of the message today is How to Associate with the World. Get some insights from Peter and Paul. Here's my first insight that I'm going to take from Paul. We are to be sent, not shocked. We are to be sent into the world, not shocked by the world. Now, now listen, we have a hard time. We don't read our Bibles correctly quite often because we read them like Americans. The Bible's not written primarily to Americans. It's written into the first century, the New Testament. So if you showed up in Corinth and you tried to understand how would this have been heard and understood by this audience, all right, if you drove your chariot into Corinth and parked it and got around and, and mingled with folks, you would find a smidgen of Christians in Corinth. You, you could very easily be there for a long time, never come across a Christian at all. Smidgen, a little sprinkle, a few Christians there in Corinth. You would find a spoonful, pretty decent sized spoonful, but still a spoonful of Jews there. Jews who had moral backgrounds that sound somewhat like the Bible. They lived out of a similar value system that Christians lived out of. So you'd find a spoonful there. But the vast majority of people you would find there would be Romans and Greeks. Who worship, were pantheon worshipers. They had a variety of gods that they worshipped. Or they worshipped no god at all. Or they worshipped human beings or tribalism. They had all kinds of intermingled ideas about where we come from and what's life all about and, and what creates the boundaries into which we're going to live our lives. Can you imagine if you pull into the parking lot and you're going to have a conversation and relate to these people that they might not see things the same way you do? I mean, just go with me there for a second. Can you imagine? How shocked do you want to be by that? Paul was not shocked. He, he knew what his world around him was like. He was sent to these people, but he was not shocked by them. Listen, you and I don't get this very well because we're Americans and because of our history. Our history is to form a nation out of convictions that are found in the Bible. We are a nation that the founding fathers were, were driven by principles, even if they weren't Christians, some of them, they were driven by the principles that are here. And so they started a nation where, hey, everybody in agreement on this, and the morality 
comes from that source. So over the years, boundaries for right and wrong, laws and legislation in the land, all reflected that for years and years and years. It hasn't been until the last century and even the last half of the last century that all of a sudden those rules are changing. That's no longer the reference point that we all share as Americans. Let's face it, we we don't know how to... I mean, if you grew up in typical American, especially in the South, this is not true in New York City, but it's very much true in the South, where most of us are from. You you grew up in something that just had familiar boundaries to it. And do, do you remember the first time you came across a mosque being built in your city or in your area? You guys old enough to remember one of those appearing? Are you kind of like, what is that? Did you see? I mean, you tell your friend, there's a mosque being built in our neighborhood. Like the shock of that, right? All right, yeah, there's a mosque being built. Or you're standing in line at Walmart and, you know, the person in front of you has got a big mustache and a head turban. He's an Indian sheik. And you're like... You know, like you don't even know how to stand next to the guy. It's like, mm-hmm, I don't have to do that. I mean, look at that. Or wearing some Muslim garb where you only see the eyes. I and mean, we come across that stuff and it weirds out the typical American. Come on, be honest. Because it feels like somebody just intruded into our home field. This is not the way we do things. We, we have different approach to life and morality. Do you understand? That's a weird American thing. The Europeans don't live like that. They've got all kinds of blended society taking place. The first century would not have felt like America. It would have felt like a secularized, polytheistic, who knows what that dude believes, gathering of people would not have felt the way we do. So what happens, right? I'll put this in your outline. What happens when Yahweh, the creator, the God of Abraham, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is displaced and some other personality or ideas become the source of defining human existence? Then there will be diverse and diverging lifestyles on the stage of human experience. Doesn't that just make sense? If you pull Yahweh, the God of the Bible, out of people's moral background, do you think they might land in a different place? Yes. Tremendously different place. I think I wrote this out in your outline. When the meaning and joy... And pleasure that come from knowing God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who births in us the experience of love and joy and peace and patience, etc. When that is not present, people will pursue something to fill up that need. Don't be shocked. I mean, listen, this home field advantage thing about Christianity has, has been accepted by us uncritically. I'm asking you this morning to criticize it. Because when I read the Bible and the doctrine of depravity that is there from Genesis to Revelation, and then I look at human behavior, there's very few days that I'm going, good night, can you believe that? Yeah. 
Yeah, I can. Because once you unplug from the creator, you're capable of all kinds of stuff. Bad stuff. Self-indulging stuff. Abusive, hurtful stuff. Yes. Every once in a while, something really unusual happens and we go, wow. But for the most part, people are living life unplugged from God. They do what they do. Because God is not in their world the way he was designed to be in their world. Are you shocked by that? Really? Last statement I wrote in your your outline. We live in a culture where Yahweh is displaced. Be prepared to encounter and relate to people who don't share your worldview. And they are actively rejecting the boundaries of Judeo-Christian morals. Our tendency is to avoid such people as these, but it is to these whom we are sent. I don't have time to unpack how we got here as a Christ, as in Christian. I'll sideswipe it in the end here, but somewhere along the way, we thought, you know, that's distasteful. That's immoral. That's not done right. Ooh, that's disgusting. And we just decided as, a, as, a, as the insiders to avoid the outsiders. And Paul bumps into that and goes, whoa, time out. That's not what I meant. I I didn't mean go and get off by yourselves. No, you're you're in the world. You're going to associate with the world. As a matter of fact, to accomplish your mission, you need to associate with the world. You are sent to the very people you've been building your life to avoid. If you pick up the playbook from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26. Remember, this is where the Apostle Paul, he's not the Apostle Paul at this point. He's Saul of Tarsus, a religious zealot, but not a Christian, opposing Christianity. And he's going to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus is going to give him a call, a ministry in his life. I think all of us need to hear the ways in which this assignment for Paul shows up in our assignment as well. Acts 26, verse 16. Jesus said, but rise, right? He's knocked to the ground. He's freaked out. Jesus is communicating with him. He says, now rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. That Gentile group, it's the Romans and Greeks that create the moral boundaries that are showing up in Corinth that are full of sexual immorality because that's the morality that they live. That's how they grew up. What was acceptable, what was not acceptable, what was, they didn't use the word perverted nearly as much as a Christian or a Jew would use the word perverted because it wasn't strange what they were doing. It's just the way they were learning to do sexuality. Jesus said, I'm going to deliver you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, listen, to open their eyes so that they may turn, listen to their condition, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are on the inside you see that other group here you should read your bible this way 
those who are sanctified by faith in me. What about those who are not sanctified by faith in me? Well, they're on the outside. If you, if you start seeing this in your Bible, you'll see it on every few pages. It's because God wants you to know. So you, and this can feel disturbing, but you should. And it's a helpful thing to be disturbed by this. Are you on the inside with God or are you on the outside? Don't, don't put some fake bandage over that and act like, well, I don't like the way that feels. If you pick your Bible up and read it, you'll find it all over the place. Because God does want you to know there is a means of being on the inside. I've made a means for you. Will you receive that and come into relationship with me? But you've got to first know you're not in relationship with God before you take him up on that. But notice for a second here, Paul, here's who I'm sending you to. Now, listen to the conditions, and let me ask you as we think about these conditions together. Are you shocked by what people do? I'm sending you to people in darkness. In darkness. Right, the only spiritual light that's available is the, is the light of God himself. So when you are not in the light, you are in the darkness. This is a darkness that you have a hard time creating because even if you go in your room and close all the doors, moonlight will slip in through the cracks of your window. This is a darkness that has no ability for you to find a a screaming piece of light somewhere to make you go, oh, that's the right, that's the way out of the room. This is darkness. People are living in a condition of darkness. How many of you know they don't see their moral compass real well in the dark? You know, I see, all right, so which way, which way out of sexual immorality? Oh, there we go. Okay, so this is the right way and that's the wrong. You understand? They're in the dark. They don't see the things that you and I see. The only reason why we see them is because of the grace of God. Because we all have come from the dark. And we're equally as clueless as anybody else on the planet. We can't put anybody ahead of ourselves in that category. And they're going to be turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Right? So we know something about Satan. We know there's this being out there. But can I just show you his resume just for a second? Do you remember what this being called Satan did to two people in the Garden of Eden who were not in darkness? Do you understand? They were not in darkness. They had much revelation from God. They walked with God. And he shows up, this deceptive creature that he is, who is powerfully able to make things appear to be as what they are not, and to... Grab hold of something inside of you that you didn't even know was in there and tug on that thing in a way that tempts you to embrace his dark and deceptive ideas. He pulled that on Adam and Eve. Any of you guys walk with God in the cool of the day and get the whole world laid out in front of you and explain to you without sin having ever made its debut? Does anybody have that in their background? Okay, so you and I don't have much of a good resume when it comes to, hey, when I meet Satan, I'll tell him where to go. Oh, okay. Good luck. I don't even believe in luck, but go ahead. Good luck. All right, so these are people who are in this condition. They're in the dark. They're under the power of Satan. They're going to receive something that for you and I has has radically changed our lives, but they have yet to receive it. They have not received forgiveness. 
that will be available to them in Christ. But what is it like to live life without forgiveness? With the haunting sense of awareness that everything that I have done, I don't know how to fix the wrongs I have done. I don't know how to escape them. How many people are obnoxious human beings to, to be around? Difficult, complicated human beings because of guilt and shame? Have you thought about that a little bit? Listen, you, you should be thinking about it because if you're going to love people, you might want to figure out what's making them tick or what's ticking them off. Why is that person so hard to be around? You ever thought if you knew their story, if you knew the guilt that they're running away from and the shame that they wake up to every day and it's made them irritated, agitated, aggressive, difficult, hard to be around, but we're to bring the good news of forgiveness to them. That's the condition that they're in. They don't know what forgiveness feels like in their life. And then to receive a place among those who are sanctified. These are spiritually homeless people. These are people who are in a condition, they don't, they don't know where they belong. They fight every day for acceptance and just trying to find something that's, that they feel like they fit in with that's not going to turn on them, that's not using them. Paul's going to bring that to them. But guess what? If Paul's going to bring that to them, he's going to have to make contact with them. He's going to have to associate with them. And when he does... What do you think they're going to be like when he parks in their parking lot and walks in and has a conversation with them and starts to interact? What do you think they're going to sound like? Nice Christians? People who just happen to have your value system who agree with the things that you agree with and, and are against all the things that are really, really perverted and wrong? Is that what you think the conversation is going to go like? Come on. It's going to be dark. It's going to be empowered and deceived by Satan himself. Another insight from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's going to tell these same Corinthians this. In the next letter he writes to them. Chapter 4 verse 3 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Do you see a group there? Everybody starting to see groups in the Bible? As opposed to those who are not perishing. Insider, outsider. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All right, I should have one set of expectations for that group. That's the condition that they're in. I should expect certain things from them. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Another set of people who are not in darkness, the light has come on for them. And they have seen life as it's supposed to be seen through the glory lens of Jesus Christ. And so I have an expectation for this group that's different than the expectation for this group. Does this just make sense? This group's been run over. That group has not. 
And the Bible's all over the place saying this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, right? You in this group shouldn't keep living like those guys in that group. You're not in the same condition. It doesn't make any sense that you would. But their condition is the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy. There's something on the inside that's greedy. That longs for something more and longs for something more. It can get addicted in a minute. It can, it can pursue perversity like you can't imagine because there's something inside of them that's greedy and it's dark in there and you're under the power of Satan and you're being deceived and tempted. You get a decent picture of these guys, right? Ephesians 2 unpacks it further. You, right, speaking to all these former Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Carrying out the desires. This group over here, the next thing they're going to do, you want to figure out the next thing they're going to do? They're going to carry out the desires of their flesh. That's the next thing they're going to do. So, so when they do that, is all of Christians going to stand back and go, oh, oh, that's so horrible. Oh, did you hear? Did you know? Yeah, yeah, I knew. I just know it's going to take on a 2019 version of what's explained right here in Ephesians and all over the Bible and Corinthians, all over the place. This group is different than this group. What do you expect from this group? What's ended up happening with us is somehow we've gotten so shocked by this group that we now avoid them at all cost. We cannot mix it up with them. We cannot get around them. Quick kids, cover your ears. Cover your eyes. Can I, just, can I just give a radical thought to you who are raising children? I'm, I'm not sure the right approach in raising children is to teach your children that the fall never happened because they've never seen it. I think you'd be better off explaining the fall to your children rather than acting like it's not there and shielding them from its existence. If you bump into a sinful world that's crumbling and falling apart and full of stuff that makes you want to throw up, explain to your children why it is in that condition. Draw them into the conversation of a world that desperately needs a savior. Oh, and let them know they'll stand in that line too. And they have their own set of cravings and greediness on the inside of their own heart that's just waiting the day that if you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome that, your story is going to sound like Uncle So-and-So's story or Aunt So-and-So's story. Oh, you, you kids remember them? Because we avoid them with everything in us. Yeah, you do. Yeah, mom and dad have relatives. 
Uh, I know you've never met them before. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but don't we live this way a little bit? Because we have an avoidance theology. The thing to do as Christians is to avoid all these people because they're doing the most horrendous stuff. Yes, they're doing the most horrendous stuff. Matter of fact, on your way to go visit them, read these passages to your kids. Listen, Johnny. Uncle Joey is going to put on a display of what it looks like to be futile in his thinking. So he's going to kind of say one stupid thing after another. Watch, take notes, let's talk on the way home. I mean, I'm not sure that's the way you want to do it, but it's just an idea. But, but honestly, what we've done in place of that is we just avoid Uncle Joe at all costs. Paul, I'm not telling you to avoid these people. I'm sending you to them. Don't be shocked when you arrive. And Paul's not shocked. We're the ones who are shocked. Craig Blomberg says, Paul's words caution strongly against those forms of separatism that leave the church unable to function as salt and light in the surrounding culture. We promote all kinds of separatism via Christian alternatives to secular institutions and activities. Thus, we can comfortably spend most of our lives in Christian schools, church meetings, Christian sporting leagues, church-based aerobics. In short, in fellowship groups for virtually any significant human activity so that we need not interact in any intimate way at all with non-Christians. Indeed, most American adults who convert to Christianity are so overwhelmed with new acquaintances and activities that within a few years, they know virtually no non-Christians well enough to engage in any meaningful kind of friendship evangelism. You can silently say this in your own heart. If you've been saved for more than five years, can you say, Amen? You know, as we talked this year, we did this with the, the men at the men's retreat. Recognize, and I'll share why this is, but, but there is an aspect of evangelism that exists in the church that is part of the life of the church. It's, it's non-negotiable. Churches don't get to decide whether or not they want to be an evangelistic church or not. Oh, that's a very evangelistic... You don't get to decide that. It's in the charter statement. But the reality is, most of us get saved, and within a few years, we don't talk to non-Christians anymore. Do you know how weird it is to say, hey... Cousin Jed. Yeah, it's me, Keith, your cousin. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember me? I mean, we haven't seen each other in about 15 years, but I know, yeah, I don't come to the family reunions because people are drunk half the time. Uh, yeah. Um, listen, we're having this thing at my church called Alpha. Are you kidding me? That's what we have to do. I mean, right now, you're like, oh, you know, Frank's always nagging me about inviting somebody to Alpha. That's what your phone call would sound like, wouldn't it? Because the only non-believers you got in your life, you've ignored them for so long, you'd almost be reintroducing yourself to them. Is that what Paul was supposed to be doing? Is that what the Bible had in mind? I am sending you to these people. And you've developed a church that avoids them at all cost. There's something not right about that. Paul said, listen, you read my letter wrong. That's not what I intended you to do. 
I, I intended you to protect the holiness of the church, not avoid the worldliness of the world. And that's what he corrects. All right, second thought here. Let's gain some insights from Peter here before some of y'all freak out and go, what on earth are we supposed to do with this? All right, we are, Paul says we are to be sent, not shocked. Peter's going to say we are to be sent and not seduced by the world. All right, let's be honest here. There are some gathered in the room here who just don't do real well with hanging out with unbelievers. You just don't do real well, and you know what I mean. If you hang out with an unbeliever long enough, you're actually going to harm the testimony of Christ. Because of the way in which you live among them. Because there is no distinction about your life. Because you're not salt. Your salt has lost its saltiness. And when you come in contact with the world, they don't see, experience, or know anything distinct about you. As a matter of fact, you find the same joys in life that they find, the same reasons in life that they find. You celebrate, come to life about, and are most animated about the same list of things that lost people do. Now for us to do what this passage is throwing open the door for us to do, that's got to get fixed too. 1 Peter 3 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Boy, that, this verse preaches, man, all by itself. And I don't, I, can't, I don't have time for it. But when was the last time somebody asked you to explain why you're so joyful and have so much hope? That should be a means of evangelism for the Christian, right? We're modeling something. We're just living life. And people pull up a chair and they watch and they go, dude, can, why, why, why do you seem like there's just so much hope in your life? Why, why is there such a joy about the way you go about living your life? So that, this generates a conversation. Our lives, the way we live our lives, the life that we live generates a conversation for people. I'm wondering if perhaps they notice more than our hope they notice how hard we are working to make them holy all right now you, i know you don't do this to strangers but you do this to your family members you do this to your family members who you have to awkwardly figure out how to relate to because they choose to a, a, an immoral lifestyle and you got to figure out whether to ever even speak to them now you find out your son your daughter uh, a relative uh has come out as homosexual. Listen, if you lived in Corinth and you found out that people practice sexual immorality, you wouldn't be going, oh my gosh, did you hear? Oh, like, yeah, everybody does stuff like that. It's Corinth. But we're, we're formally a Christian nation. We were never a Christian nation. But we feel like we were, right? So now people are doing stuff that's outside the box. I don't know what to do with that. So if my relative comes out and says that they're if same-sex attraction, you know, do, do I let them in the house? Do I let them eat with my kids? I mean, this is the kind of stuff we don't know what to do. This is worse than a mosque being built in your neighborhood. <laughs> I 
And so at one point, what becomes the agenda is to get them to stop doing that. Stop doing that. Shame it. Pressure it. Argue with it. Create debate about it. Warn them. Blah, blah, blah. What's the goal there? To, to reform their morals? I'm not sure that's the mission that we're on. Right? We're living the hope that we have before those who are in darkness. Do you understand the moral compass is really hard to see in the dark? Deception of the enemy is at work. We know what's behind all this stuff. And we are there on a mission. Paul, I am sending you to these people. Now in this passage, Peter is going to highlight a number of things in his letter that has some concern that some of you get amongst these unbelievers and you don't have an impact on them. They have an impact on you. You might need to reconsider how you're going to be sent. Because in your sending, you're being seduced. And that's a problem too. Right, the same Bible that sends us and tells us to associate also warns us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Listen, you're not sinning by associating with lost people. So something more is going on here. You're sinning by participating in sin with lost people. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The same problem they were having. This is just fast forward, right? Chapter 15 of the same letter. Recalling chapter 5. Some people, they don't see any form of distinction. They don't see any idea that there's a God to which our lives give an account. Because you just jump right in with them and they've got no sense of anything is different about you or them. I say this to your shame. They've got no knowledge of God as a result. Because when you get around them, they're better evangelists than you are. And they convince you to live like them. And you absorb their life. All right, listen, if that's your story, you need to do something about that. You need to forget everything I said in the first half of the message. Because <laughs> you're like, up to this point, you're going, yeah, that's right, man. That's, that's, that's why I'm hanging out with Johnny and his boys. I'm trying to share Christ with them. All right. I like that. Right up until the moment when bad company corrupts good morals and you become like them rather than seeing Christ. If that's the thing that's happening, you need to hear this message from Peter's perspective here and not just from Paul's. First Peter chapter 4, verse 3. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here, what do you expect Gentiles want to do before you read the rest of the passage? What do Gentiles want to do? What do you expect from them? Are you shocked? They want to live in sensuality, right? Whatever the senses provide some sense of enjoyment. The passions, they want to pursue their passions. Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Listen, you do not join them while you do associate with them. It's a little challenging, isn't it? Because you are called to associate with them. Paul is not aberrant in his thinking. We are sent to these people. But we will not join them in certain things. 
This is how you associate with the world. John Piper wrote an article called Winsome Weirdos. He said, Peter has already identified the Christian as elect exiles, whom he, he urges as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The entire Christian life is the time of your exile, right? We're living as visitors here. We're on our way somewhere else. In other words, we are strangers and exiles on the earth. The implication of this foreign status of Christians among the, the cultures of the world is that the new birth, listen, has given us new desires that no longer match what the Gentiles want to do. This is the source of Paul's shock for the Corinthians. He stares at a people who don't seem to have been impacted by God. He's not shocked by how lost the world is. He's shocked by how unimpacted the Christians are. That's the right place to be shocked. The result is a disruption of whom we literally run with. And this disruption causes our associates to be surprised. That is, they think it's strange that we are not running with them into the same sensuality, and passions, and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 1 Peter 2, verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Right, when you read that verse carefully, it's assuming two things. That you are among these Gentiles. And that your life is seeable by them. Is it not? But you're also warned here to keep your life a certain way for the sake of the mission that you're on in their life. Do not be seduced by the world that you have been sent Two. One last thought from Mr. Piper. What makes this so relevant today is that American culture is increasingly out of step with the way of life which the Bible calls how you ought to walk and to please God. Proposals about how Christians should respond to this situation include, as recent a symposium Christianity Today illustrates, I'm not going to unpack these, but the Benedict option, the Wilberforce option, and the Dr. King option. I'll just share a brief thought about that in a second. It seems to me that all these options embody aspects of the response to the culture that are needed in our day. Ongoing engagement with our culture is needed. Creating alternative communities is needed. And readiness to surrender dominance is needed. What the Apostle Paul contributes to this debate, among other things, is this. Baby boomers like me, I'm the last year of the baby boomers, I'm included there with Dr. Piper. Baby boomers who grew up with an assumed overlap between Christian morality and cultural expectations, right? We come from a background where we kind of shared a lot of the same views on morality. Back in the 60s when this stuff was just getting unbolted, when some of us, you know, were being born back in the 50s, etc., there, there was an overlapping morality between our culture and Christianity. So, that used to exist. And millennials who desperately want to be hip and cool must both joyfully embrace the calling to be weirdos. This is a very important line. I wish I had time to unpack this one statement, but let it, let it hold on to it. It is not our 
culture. And we are not cool. It is not our culture. This is one thing I will say. I'm going to sideswipe you millennials for a second. When the baby boomers were getting saved in the 60s and 70s, They quickly recognize the need to break their ties with their culture. They no longer identify themselves with their culture. There wasn't hostility. Now, what they're going to do with that is the problem I just described in the first part of this passage. They became, became opposers of the culture, critiques of the culture, and distant from the culture, and disconnected from the culture. And so if you got saved, the way in which you walked that out was cut yourself off from the world completely. Burn every album. Don't ever go to any place that's questionable. Don't spend any time with people who have questionable behavior. That, that's what was modeled and taught to the church. Okay, millennials are in a totally different place. Millennials interact with the culture. Millennials are actually in a great posture to do what I preached in the first half of this message. Baby boomers are not. The biggest need for baby boomers is to realize that there are lost people that we actually do need to associate with. I don't need to tell a millennial that. Because millennials live amongst their culture. That can be a great thing. Except when you fail to identify that it is not your culture. Your culture is old and comes from another place. It's from a kingdom that's not of this world. It draws its values and its practices and its priorities from somewhere else besides whatever's trending today. I don't hear millennials antagonistic enough. I hear baby boomers too antagonistic. And somewhere in here is the truth of what we need to become as God's people. Right. So a little advice from Peter and from Paul. All right, let me finish with this thought. If you weren't here last week... We, we shared some thoughts just about the vision for the church, mission for the church. And I, I mentioned something I want to talk a lot more about and, and just whenever I can. That as a local church, there are certain things we're called to. And I said there were seven things, seven hills to die on, seven priorities that, that you cannot decide that's not going to be a priority for us. The Bible doesn't let us do that. So in, in this discussion today, I want you to see two hills in particular. There's a hill of evangelism that the church is to die on. The hill is worth recapturing for some who have let it slide and we don't have an evangelistic bone in our bodies and we don't spend our time thinking or practicing the pursuit and association with lost people. That's a hill to die on. As a church, we need to be prepared to shed some blood because we're going to die on that hill. We're not giving that hill up. We're not going to walk away from it. We're not going to design another life that doesn't have this hill in it. The Bible doesn't let us do that. You know, the same Bible that presents the hill of evangelism also presents the hill of holiness. A gathering of people who've experienced God, who've looked upon his beauty, who have been convicted and changed, and whose lives are being renewed, and who daily are being conformed to the image of Christ. How many of you guys can see that there's a tension between these two hills? Because if you're going to get around people that are messy and sloppy and sinful and messed up, you're going to have to have your A game on and it's probably going to have an impact on you. So if your only hill that you want to die on is the hill of holiness, because that's what you were taught, and and the evidence of that is that you're very unevangelistic. There's very seldom an opportunity for you to share the gospel with anybody. 
Because you've isolated yourself from associating with the world. It's probably because you have a high value for this hill. Now listen, before you go criticizing this hill, all you evangelistic people, this hill's in the Bible. This hill is a hill to die on as well. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the power of the Holy Spirit to take on the image of Christ. That's a non-negotiable. But the church is called to both of these. We don't get to choose one or the other. We have to live in the tension of how do we answer the call to both of these with our lives. And that's a, a little quote there, that Benedict option that John Piper brought out. The Benedict option is actually a book called the Benedict option, but it's drawing from Benedict of old who started, he was the father of monasteries. He was a guy who looked at the poor, shoddy condition of Christianity and said, you know, the world is taking over the church. And the only way to save us from that is to pull away and create monasteries for people who became isolated from the world for the sake of this hill. He had a right passion. He went wrong for being concerned about how worldly the church had become. Nobody's ever wrong for that conviction. But this remedy left this abandoned. There was now no hill of evangelism because people pull their lives back so much from the world that there's no witness now. There's no light in the darkness. There's no confronting the works of darkness for the sake of those who are bound up in it. Now, interesting, you guys have watched this play out. There is a style of church today. They're either called seeker-sensitive or attractional model churches. Their main priority is, guess what? Evangelism. Their main priority is lost people. Their main priority is breaking down every wall, every barrier, everything that causes a person who's lost to hesitate to get around Christians. And so they create settings, create churches where that's the priority, that's what's driving them. All right, kudos and applause because that is a biblical value. Getting the gospel around lost people is radically important. But do you know what suffers through this movement? The hill of holiness. Another hill that I mentioned last week was the hill of the ministry of God's word. A lot of these churches aren't going to preach God's word clearly because that becomes an obstacle to their audience. So you don't get to pick and choose. Do you see what happens when you do? The church that says, hey, we just love our own, and oh, can you hear so? <gasps> that church is full of people who've been saved for 20 years, and nobody's been converted lately that they can remember. Because they won't die on the hill of evangelism. This hill is sloppy. It'll mess your life up. It might tempt you. You might get engulfed in darkness. You might have to be pulled out of this neighborhood if you do this. That's right. So, guys, this is where this hill, hills of holiness, all these hills are important. But here's what I want to conclude. And you can come back up, Eric. You guys know where your loyalties are, right? Don't raise your hands, but how many of you guys are, are really, really loyal to the hill of holiness? I mean, this is, this is what matters right here. People live in their lives for certain values, especially Christians live in their lives in a way that's not worldly, not trendy, not taking on the world's activities, proper separation. That, that's, this is a passion for me. And then there are some who would say, hey, I, I, I see, you know, hey, hell is forever. 
And, and it matters if you get around people who are lost. And so, yeah, I'm not every church, at every church event because there are people who are lost who need to get reached. Which, by the way, that, that, that's a real issue. That's a real challenge. That's a challenge the leaders of the church wrestle through. So how much do we create that lives in this world? And how much do we create for the church that lives in this world? Because we're called to die on both of these hills. But, but the question is, how are you doing in that, right? I put two questions in the bottom of your outline there. One, what will you do when your life of isolation compromises or eliminates your calling to evangelism? What will you do? Leave it like that? You don't have the option to leave it like that. I am sending you to these people. Second, what will you do when your life of association compromises or destroys your life of holiness and fellowship and discipleship? When you no longer keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, what will you do if you're sitting here this morning and you are as worldly as the people you're trying to convert? What do you do? You you might need a little more value on the hill of holiness in your own life. Because if ultimately you're after glorifying God, and that would be for me the one thing all these hills seek to do is to bring glory to God. You bring glory to God through both of these. But the odds are you do one of them a lot better than you do the other one. And we might need to think, Paul was correcting a church because they were getting this wrong. Last thought from David Pryor. It says the two-edged principle of purity within the church and open-ended mixing with outsiders contains the key to effective Christian witness. Salt and light, the two metaphors used by Jesus to describe the distinctiveness of the church, both assume involvement in corruption and darkness. You guys use your lights during the bright sunlight? When do you turn your light on? When you're in the dark. You know what salt was used for? It was to invade. They would rub it into the fish to hinder the decay that was taking place by oxidation. The salt would hinder that. But it it had to actually touch it. It couldn't sit in the salt pile. And that's what we're called to do. The example of Jesus also points in the same direction. He was entirely without sin. And yet he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. The basic reason for so much ineffective evangelism is that the Christian community is both remote from believers and lacks with fellow from unbelievers and lacks from fellow believers who persist in sin of one kind or another. In a word, there is no distinctiveness. Right? We we don't care enough about whether the church is something to stare at that's worthwhile by the fallen world. Or we're so distant from this group that we're having no impact here. Right? Now, I'm not sure where you are this morning, but can you allow the Holy Spirit to open up your space and talk to you about these things? Let's, let's stand up together. Let's take a moment to let God get personal with our particular categories.
now I pray for us as a church, Lord. This message divides the church into different categories. Categories that may show that we value one thing that's really biblical and really valuable at the expense of something else that's really biblical and really valuable. So Lord, this morning, we need to be able to see both of these issues. We need to be grabbing insights from Paul who pleaded with the church that in no way was he trying to get them to disassociate from the immoral people of the world, the idolaters that were around them, the ones who had these darkened conditions and passions that were misplaced. Or whatever it is that we have bought into and living our lives, Lord, have we done a disservice by disconnecting ourselves from people who don't believe like us, relatives who don't behave like us, friends who have continued to live in some gutter that maybe we used to live in that gutter too. And we knew that was bad and we thought the remedy to bad was move as far away from that person as we can. Lord, is that what you wanted us to do? Maybe some of us need to walk from this place with a whole different approach to who am I going to associate with? Lord, I would be concerned for some who are here today that Paul's correction to the Corinthians who, whose lives had lost its salt, who lacked influence, on those that they associated with. The heartache of Paul to say, there are some who have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. God, if some here have kept an association with the loss that is corrupting their own testimony and bringing it down, Lord, that this morning would jar that, would change that. Lord, for, maybe for some, they need to back away from a situation that's no longer bringing the kingdom of God. It's just tearing down the work of God in their own life. Lord, there is a reality that bad company will corrupt good morals. So Lord, if there are some here who their association with lost friends and relatives and co-workers is awakening sin and the practice of sin and the persistence of sin in their own soul. Lord, this morning, let them see they need to do something different. But God, as we move forward, these are hills to die on, Lord. We don't have the choice to choose one over the other. God, I believe this year you want to awaken a sense of evangelism among us. We need to get this right. This, This is perhaps working against that. We have some ideas that aren't yours, that we inherited, that we made up ourselves. God, would you help us this morning? Challenge us this morning. Let's open the pages of scripture. 
Let us find multiple places where your strategy is unfolding. And your people are advancing the kingdom into places that are dark and the enemy is at work. And yet, God, your greater power is at work through your people among those who need to see something. Oh, Spirit of God, bring these truths to bear in our souls. Send us forward, Lord, with a better understanding of what does it mean to associate with the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And bless you guys.